Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lorman Goodwin. And did you know that in the workplace, women are more likely to take on time-consuming tasks that are unlikely to drive revenue and won't be recognized in performance evaluations? When you're so busy doing non-promotable tasks and office housework, it's easy to see why quitting your job feels like the only way out. Today, we'll discuss the role of office housework, how to say no, and why it all starts with awareness. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us about the book, The No Club, and what it's about and why you wanted to write it and all the good stuff? So I'm a faculty member. I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Economics. And I sort of came to The No Club from a very personal angle. So I, along with the other co-authors of the book, um, formed a club called the No Club about 12 years ago because we were all so overloaded uh, with work that really wasn't core to the jobs that we had. And we started to meet on a monthly basis to try to get our work lives back on track and not be so incredibly busy. And the reason why it was called the No Club was that our initial intent was to uh, really start saying no to all the assignments that we were taking on that were outside of our uh, regular jobs. And while we initially referred to that work as being crappy tasks, we ultimately understood that this work was really critical to our organizations, but just wasn't helping us at the end. So we ended up calling it non-promotable tasks because it was work that didn't help us move forward in our careers. Mm -hmm. I remember early in my career, I was a recruiter and I remember specifically my manager coming to me and saying, okay, you have your recruitment job and your roles, but what else do you want to take on? And I almost feel like managers or organizations think that that's a way of trying to get you more involved or see what else you like. But it sounds like, yeah, to your point, that would have been just more non-promotable tasks versus me focusing just on the one, the quote unquote one job, which is a big job. So, I mean, can we talk a little bit how this comes about and organs, like the role that organizations play in this? 
So I, th- I think it's important to recognize that in any organization, there is work that isn't anyone's job. There, you know, there are a lot of parts that go into doing what an organization does, and everybody has to step up and take on some non-promotable assignments. And when we talk about non-promotable assignments, we're really talking about a very large class of assignments. So it could be helping other people with their work. It could be recruiting new employees. It could be helping out with the onboarding. It could be, you know, taking notes at a meeting, even working with a low revenue, very challenging client could be non-promotable work. So it's work that has to be done within the organization. I think a great example of non-promotable work sort of, there was a recent report that came out by McKinsey and Lean In where they had asked over 400 organizations whether they thought it was critical that employees spend time on employee well-being and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the vast majority of the organizations said, yes, that is critical. But when they then subsequently were asked whether or not this was work that was recognized, the minority of the organizations had any form of formal recognition. So it's you know, it is work that we see as critical, but yet when it comes to recognizing and rewarding it, we don't do a good job of that. Yeah. It makes me think of like the busyness trap, you know, how you can feel like if you're busy, you're staying productive, you're doing important things. So to your point, you, we, we think it's critical, but then it's not what we think of when we think about who are we going to promote? Who's going to advance in their career? So I have some questions that are going to be a little bit more focused on the difference between women and men, but feel free to sort of chime in about organizations in here because I feel like there's a lot of different parties and moving parts in this and and it's important. And I, I think for women, do you feel like women volunteer for or are assigned more non-promotable work than men? Or is that maybe just what I think from my personal experience. So, so what we see in our work is that women and both in our own work and in work of others is that women everywhere are spending more time on non-promotable tasks. So it doesn't matter if you are a TSA agent, supermarket clerk, architect, engineer, working in academia, um, a lawyer, women everywhere are spending more time on this work and they're spending a lot more time. So we worked with one organization where we found that women were spending 200 more hours each year on non-promotable tasks. Wow. So it's it's a lot of work. And what's critical in terms of what we should do about it is really why are women spending so much more time on this work? So is it just because they sort of inherently enjoy this work? Is it because they are really good at it? And what we found in our work is that women are doing this work because we all expect them to take it on. So when it comes to sort of that dreaded meeting where the supervisor comes in with an assignment that nobody wants to take on, but everybody knows somebody has to take on, you are absolutely correct that women are more likely to raise their hand reluctantly to take on that assignment. So indeed, in our studies, what we see is that women are 50% more likely to raise their hand to say, I will take one uh, for the team. But what also happens, because we expect women to take on this work, is that we're far more likely to ask them to take on the work. And when we ask them, we are really giving them very little room to to decline the request. So they say yes a lot more uh, than men do. So it's sort of this evil circle where we're asking them more and they're saying yes more because they say yes more, we ask them more. So these expectations are really key to why it is that women are ending up with so much more of the non-promotable work. 
What happens when women say no? Are they versus a man? Are they pushed back more against because of that expectation, whether you're conscious or unconscious of it? Yeah. So what research shows is indeed that when women say no to these assignments, they're perceived negatively. That can have consequences, both in terms of pay, in terms of future assignments, in terms of sort of future collaboration. So a woman who says no to an assignment gets these negative repercussions, whereas men who say no are pretty much perceived as if they're you know, neutral. It's as if they were never asked in the first place. So the perceptions of men and women saying yes and no are very different. So it sort of puts women in a bind in terms of the consequences it can have for them. But another problem is because women themselves have internalized these expectations, what we see in our research is that women far more than men feel guilty uh, when they're asked to take on this work. So because they too think that this is their obligation, they feel guilt when they don't step up to the task. So the, the fact that we're seeing that these expectations are so critical to why it is that women went, end up with this work, it, it also makes it hard for women to fix this problem on their own because they're going to keep getting asked. So what this really points to is that this is up to organizations to fix. This is not a fix the women problem, but rather a fix the organization problem because expectations are so critical in leaving all the work with the women. I want to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, Chime. No one likes waiting on a paycheck, especially when you've got bills due. Am I right? Good thing there's Chime. Now you can get your paycheck up to two days early with direct deposit. That's up to two more days to save, pay bills, and generally just feel good about your money situation. But Chime is more than just about getting paid early. It's also an award-winning mobile app, checking account, debit card, and optional savings account. Chime is changing the way people think about banking. They are a financial technology company founded on the premise that banking services should be helpful, easy, and free. Their model does not rely on overdraft fees, service fees, minimum balance requirements, and more. Chime partners with regional banks to design member-first financial products. This creates a more competitive market with better, lower-cost options for everyday Americans who aren't being served well by the traditional banks and that model. Everyone deserves financial peace of mind, and Chime is banking that has your back. So what are you waiting for? Hopefully not your paycheck. Get started with Chime today. Applying for a free account takes less than two minutes. Get started at chime.com backslash Contessa. That's chime.com backslash Contessa, which is spelled C-O-N-T-E-S-S-A. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bank Corp or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Early access to direct deposit funds depends on payer. All right, now let's get back to the show. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411 and sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials and always with a cocktail in hand. Always. 
So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever get annoyed that there's all this advice out there about set boundaries, just say no, almost like if you would just do these things, you being the woman, if you would just do these things at work or home, this problem wouldn't exist. Do you ever get annoyed with like seeing that advice a lot because you're like, you want to scream like it's not, it's not just saying no, or you can't just set boundaries and call it a day. I mean, the boundaries might be a good thing to, to have and to do, but that's not the fix, right? No, absolutely. So with a lot of these gender differences we see in the labor market, we have this notion that we should fix the women to be like the men. But if we take a step back and say, okay, what is it that the organization is trying to achieve? What the organization needs is not more people saying no. They need more people saying yes. So if anybody needs fixing, it's the men who need to step up to saying yes. And in order to get more men to step up to say yes, the organization needs to pay attention to this problem and create incentive structures such that the men know that they too have to take on this work and that they know that it is costly for the organization to give women all of this work. Because what ends up happening when you just give women all the non-promotable work is that you are not necessarily giving it to the employee who is best at doing the work, right? So, you know, it's, it's particularly critical when we have young men and women coming into a new job because we should figure out who's good at doing what. And we can't figure that out if we, from the get-go, give all the promotable work to the men and the majority of the non-promotable work to the women. Then we will never be able to see who really has the best potential for handling that big revenue client and make sure that that's the employee that you put on the big revenue client rather than sort of saying, oh, you know, Lauren is so good at taking notes. We should get her on taking notes. We need to think about what kind of job you would do if you were given the big client instead. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And um, I'm just like nodding my head because I have so many, either my own personal stories or stories I've heard from other women. For example, my sister's she hates doing the financial models at work, but they always ask her to do it, you know, and it's, it's interesting. And maybe that's not a non-promotable task, but it's interesting to your point. It's like, but those take hours and they're really hard to do. And just, I mean, what about asking someone else to see what their skill level is? Cause who's going to volunteer to do this like big tedious task or something like that. What about, you mentioned incentives. Um, the organizations that are doing a good job at this. And also I was just thinking like, this would be such a good interview question for someone to ask. Like if you're a woman going for an interview, asking them like, how do you incentivize men and women equally to take on the work tasks that are not maybe, you know, the glamorous ones, of course, everyone's going to raise their hand for the glamorous ones. What are the, some of these incentives, or maybe there's a company out there that does as well. Well, I, I think there are a number of ways in which organizations can improve what they're currently doing. So I, I think the first step is just to raise awareness that assignments are not created equally yeah. and some assignments are more critical for advancement. The second step is to just you know change the way that we allocate work. If we know that women are more likely to volunteer, then we shouldn't ask for volunteers. Then we should just take turns. We should just you know draw names out of a hat. So there are really simple steps that we can do to just make sure that we don't fall into this trap where we all expect women to take on the work and they end up having to take it on because we all expect it. But a sort of more challenging task is really to push organizations to think about what is it that matters 
for your success as an organization. You know, I think it's disturbing if an organization says diversity, equity, and inclusion is important for us, but we are not going to recognize it or reward it. So sort of reassess, are there ways in which we could reward some of this work? That being said, so, so there's certainly, you know, there are ways that you can make the, what is characteristic of non-promotable work is that it tends to not be directly linked to the organization's mission. It tends to be invisible and it tends to be work that many people can do so it doesn't rely on your specialized skills. Now, if it just is a question of being invisible, you can sort of work on that. You can begin to track it, you can pay attention. You know, there are things you can do to make it visible so that you can make it more promotable. That being said, there is work that will always be non-promotable. You cannot make all work promotable. And even if you can make some work slightly more promotable, it's still going to be lower ranked than more promotable assignments. So at the end of the day, creating expectations for how much non-promotable work employees at different levels should be doing, I think is a critical step. So that in response to our work, the Harvard Kennedy School came out and said, all of our employees need to spend this many hours on service work and teaching. That's, that's, that's the requirement because what that does, if you say, if you don't do enough non-promotable work, you are not going to get a satisfactory performance review, no matter how well you did on the promotable work. So you suddenly get exactly what you wanted, which was getting more people to say yes. And you're going to get more people to sort in to the non-promotable assignments where they're particularly strong because they have to do some anyway. So you avoid this problem where everybody's shirking and trying to avoid the assignment. So I think those sort of, you know, bringing awareness, keeping track of who's doing most non-promotable work, changing simple procedures for how we allocate the work. And then lastly, really deciding what is it that matters for promotion and potentially making some work promotable, potentially hiring more administrative assistants to do the administrative work so that it can be promotable for someone else and sharing the knowledge about what is it that really matters for promotion. I think that is key. I think there are too many people in jobs where they're doing a lot of stuff, but they don't know how it relates to the overall mission. Or if you're not in a revenue generating department, it's like, then, you know, how important is my role? How not important is it? This also makes me think of like when you're in class, which as a teacher, you know, this, it's like you get points for participation. Like you have to participate. You can get straight A's on all the tests, but you won't get the best grade in the class if you don't participate. And that forces everyone to raise their hand to your point. So these are, these are really great tips. If you're at work and this show is obviously tailored to women at work. So specifically, Is there any tips or advice you can give for how you can tell if your work is non-promotable and then what to do about it? I mean, is there sort of like a filter you could go through and then what do you do? Approach your boss and ask them, hey, is this important? Do I keep doing this or no? Yeah. So, you know, we sort of have three characteristics of a non-promotable task. So to really figure out if something is promotable, we do indeed encourage conversations either with peers or with supervisors, depending on what your relationship is with your supervisor. But sort of as, a, as an initial filter is just to look at the assignment that you have and say, how closely linked is the work that I'm doing to the organization's mission? You know, if it's for-profit, am I generating revenue directly, et cetera? So 
How closely is it linked to the organization's mission? Secondly, is it visible? Will people notice that I have done this? Will my name be attached to it? If I'm working on slides but not giving the presentations, that's invisible. Yeah. Work. Mm-hmm. And the last question is whether you are using your unique skills to do the work. If you are a surgeon, doing administrative work is not a unique skill. So asking those three questions will give sort of a first filter to say, is this a promotable assignment? And the second step is to have a sense of how much non-promotable work should you be doing and sort of what do you want your portfolio work to look like? So uh, if it is a non-promotable assignment, then decide, is this the type of non-promotable work that I should be doing? And if it isn't, can I say no without negative repercussions? And if you can say no without negative repercussions, the way to say no is to explain why you can't do the work and help the requester solve the problem. So if this is a, an assignment that should be handled by somebody more junior than you saying, you know, right now I'm working on the product launch. I, if I take on this internal committee, I'm not going to be able to dedicate the time that I need on this more important product launch. So why don't we take this internal committee Give it to John, who just joined the organization, who would benefit from getting to know everybody and have him have that experience. So you've solved the problem, you've explained it. And most of the time, you're just going to get a thank you from the requester. Now, sometimes you just can't say no. And what we're really pushing for there is that you don't just say yes, but rather that you negotiate your yes. So when you have a request that you have to take on, take it on on the condition of something. So say, I'll take on this assignment if you can offload one of my other non-promotable tasks so that at least you don't you know, just add to your non-promotable work. Another opportunity is just to say, this is a really big assignment. How about if we divvy it up into three different components? I'll do component A because that's where I'm more skilled. And then Jim and John can do the two other components. And the last option is if you have to take on the entire assignment, it's just to say, sure, I will do it this time but then John has to do it next time. Mm -hmm. So that there's a plan to get off the assignment because what we often see is that women start off on a non-promotable task and then they get stuck. It somehow becomes theirs. So having sort of an exit strategy signed up or lined up for your yes um, certainly reduces the negative consequences of taking it on. Yeah. It's like, uh, if I take that job on once I'll own that job forever. So I don't want to be, you know, I always say that at home. I always tell my husband, I'm not taking the trash out. Cause if I take it out, I'm going to be the trash person. And I don't want to be that. <laughs> you know, I don't want one more thing. I love the advice of if you have to say yes, make it a negotiable. Yes. Because I think that oftentimes, and I think this is to your point, society's expectations, but women start to fall into this too. We have this thing where we're like, oh, don't ruffle any feathers. Just say yes and take it on. And do you think that this non-promotable task, do you think these are sort of the straws that broke the camel's back for everything during COVID for women and why they were leaving the workplace? And I mean, especially because all of a sudden some of the support they maybe were getting at home started to disappear. I mean, I'm noticing a lot of commonalities between this stuff at work, but also at home. Yeah. So the pandemic has certainly put a very severe toll on on women. The increased caregiving responsibilities that women have had during the pandemic have have certainly, you know, it's burnout has increased both for men and women during the pandemic, but the gender gap, which has always been there. So it's always been the case that women had more burnout than men. That 
gender gap and burnout has doubled. So, you know, certainly the demands from home have added to that. But I think what has also added to it is that when we work online, this problem of work being invisible and that often being seen as being non-promotable is increased if we're working remotely. So in order to keep sort of show your worth, uh, a lot of employees have had to work many more hours than they did before. Another problem with working remotely is that it becomes less clear what is promotable because you no longer see where it is that all the guys are going into the meeting with the prestigious clients. So you may be working really, really hard, but not feeling like you're getting anywhere because you're not seeing that everyone else is off doing work that is valued much more highly. So you don't see the celebration, you don't see the recognition. So you don't even notice when the big assignments are, are passing you by because you have much less information about what is happening. So, you know, one concern when we sort of continue with this hybrid model of working at home and in the office is that many more men are going to go back into the office and women are going to be staying at home. And this gap in access to promotable assignments could very well increase if that's the path that we're taking. Yeah. It's like they're all meeting with the dream client and you don't even know the meeting's happening. Um, So, okay, let's pretend I'm a woman at work. My company maybe does hybrid. So I only have to go into the office on Tuesdays. I'm just kind of setting up the scenario of someone who might be listening to the show. What's your advice to them? Should they be going in more? I mean, I one of my fears is that I love the hybrid model. I think this is incredible that we've kind of had this opportunity. And I'm so afraid that we're all just going to go back to the way things were, which also wasn't working very well for women. But you bring up a really good point, which is that if if we give employees a lot of choices, there's a good chance that women will be again left out. So and maybe instead of from the woman's point of view, but from organizations, what's your advice to them that they should create hybrid levels or where they don't just give people free choices if they're going to allow remote or how does that work so that women don't get the short end of the stick with this, this remote stuff, even though they might really want it. I mean, women or anybody might really enjoy the remote work situation. I, I think, you know, it's, we're in this very unique labor market right now where I, I don't think we've been for yeah, <laughs> a very long time where there is excess demand for labor and employees are, are finally in a position where they have very substantial bargaining power. And we have a lot of organizations fighting to recruit new employees. And what we've seen throughout the sort of great resignation is that the resignations were led by women. And, you know, there's this large reshuffling happening right now. And organizations, if they want to retain diversity and want to retain women, would be wise to pay attention to what assignments they're giving to whom. And and really thinking not so much, you know, we make this mistake when we give work to employees where we think about who is good at what, but don't think about the cost, but sort of the, the comparative advantage that the employee has. So it may be that, you know, Jane is really good at taking notes at a meeting, or really good at handling that time-consuming, low-revenue, challenging client. But we should be asking ourselves, well, okay, maybe she's really good at working with that client, but imagine what she could do if she was giving the high-revenue client. And organizations will have to find ways, even under this hybrid model, of 
thinking more carefully about giving the assignments to the employee that has the greatest value added on that particular assignment. Um, or otherwise, they, they too will be losing out. So what is exciting about this work is not just that the changes are pretty small and inexpensive, but also that it is in the interest of the organizations to improve this. It is not in the interest of an organization to have its female employees spending 200 more hours per year on non-promotable work. No, no organization wants that. And once they become aware of how big the problem is, they too will want to fix it. And if they don't fix it, the female employees are going to go elsewhere. So, you know, maybe it's a dream scenario that all organizations are going to recognize this, but this is a time where I think workers can demand that we start paying attention to these issues and that we come up with systems that make sure that the employees within the organization have equal opportunities to demonstrate their potential when they first start out. Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is also puts a lot of burden on, on the organization, which is the whole point. We, we were talking before we started recording that the burden shouldn't always be on women, which has been sort of the age old advice, like change yourself or, you know, turn yourself inside out to, to help this. And we've literally your research shows that's not what it takes anyways, but organizations who are going to do remote or hybrid or some other model, if they're not thinking about this and you're listening to the show, start asking the question, your, your first piece of advice was to bring awareness to this topic, right? So start asking the questions, how are you going to make sure that, you know, whoever's at working from home or more often things are equitable that I get to be included in the client project or whatever it is like that. I think, I think when sometimes we're like afraid to ask the question because we don't want to again, like ruffle the feathers, but asking the question brings is like a natural way to bring awareness to something without, (laughs) I guess, like slamming it in their face. Like, did you know this stat? Right? Like, I, I feel like asking questions and being really curious is sort of a non-intimidating way to start bringing awareness to this. And and I I sort of want to say, so you mentioned a couple of times that women are afraid of ruffling feathers. We we should be aware that they are, will ruffle feathers more than a man who did the exact same thing. So so it's it's not so much that women are particularly nervous about this. It's, It's actually, it's because the reality they live is one in which they're questioning or they're objecting will ruffle feathers. The response will be much more severe. So that's part of the reason where we're excited to talk to you and talk to other organizations or anybody who will listen because the collective awareness that work isn't created equally and that it isn't in the interest of organizations who give all this work to women can start moving things in the right direction. So once you have allies within the organization who know of this problem, Next time that you get volunteered for something or voluntold, as we call it, somebody else can say, wait a minute, Lauren did the holiday party last year. Somebody else should do it this year. Or Lauren helped helped the new recruit last time somebody showed up. We should be doing it differently. So once you bring that awareness, you know, at my own institution, we had this one committee that was put together where all the representatives from the sciences showed up as female. And because everyone was aware of this problem of women doing many more non-promotable tasks, immediately when they showed up, everyone knew that there was something wrong and the committee was dismantled because it was so clear that that was not a representative committee. So once you have the awareness, it becomes harder 
to just fall into this trap of saying, oh, this is who we expect to take it on. Because suddenly we all know that what we're doing isn't right. So that, you know, really introducing the vocabulary of non-promotable tasks and thinking about how we best distribute that work, I think it can go a long way. I love it. Well, Lisa, this is amazing. The book is called The No Club. Everyone should read it and even organizations should start giving it to their their leaders as well. Where can people follow up with your work? Any links for the book, anything like that that you want to share? We have a website that is probably the best place to go to. It is called thenoclub.com. So people should remember that. The no yes, club. <laughs> you made it easy. <laughs> uh, it has information about other clubs that are starting. It has information about where we're speaking. It has a request form if people want us to come out and talk about this in their organizations. So uh, we encourage everybody to go there. You can also order the book from there. So really, we wrote this book because we see non-promotable work as being one of the fundamental structures that are keeping gender differences in the labor market in place. And if we can equalize that work, we can help address the gender differences in wages, the gender differences in advancement, the gender differences in burnout, stress, lack of attachment to the labor market. We're not saying this is the solution to all the problems women are facing. Women are facing a lot of problems, but this can help reduce the differences. It is something that women and their organizations should stand united behind. So, you know, we are hopeful that by bringing awareness and by having written this book, that organizations and their employees will start paying attention to giving all their employees equal opportunities to demonstrate their potential. Yeah, I am hopeful as well. And I'm more hopeful after this conversation. So that's good. And your book. So, well, thank you so much. And we'll put the link to the website and the book in the show notes. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Please remember to rate and review our show. Thank you to everyone who has done it. Every week I check and it's amazing to see that little number go up, especially the reviews. So thank you so much. If you want to learn more about the No Club, don't forget we put the link to the website and the book in the show notes. And we're not promoting anything else because I just want everyone to go buy this book and read it with their teams.